Warning, this episode contains brain food that will lead to improved emotional and social intelligence. Give us one hour and we'll help you change the way you think about happiness. Harvesting Happiness with Lisa Cypress-Kamen is fresh, optimistic, and purpose-driven media that promotes well-being from the inside out. Each week, Lisa spotlights diverse trendsetters and change agents who are the greatest contemporary thinkers and doers, devoting their lives to creating a better world in which to live. Your host, Lisa Cypress-Kamen, is a widely recognized applied positive psychology expert, author, documentary filmmaker, and lecturer specializing in optimal lifestyle management. Let's get to it. Here's Lisa. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, wherever you are. Thanks for joining me on this show. Today, we're focusing on strategic communication that builds bridges and activates change. We're talking about the secret sauce to being able to communicate with anyone. And my first guest is Justin Lee. My guest today is Justin Lee, who has spent more than 20 years building bridges between conservatives and progressives on matters of faith and public policy. He is the founder of the world's largest LGBT Christian advocacy organization and the author of two books, including the newly released Talking Across the Divide, How to Communicate with People You Disagree With and Maybe Even Change the World. Justin, thanks for joining us on Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio. Well, thank you so much for having me. Well, it's my pleasure. You have written a terrific book, one that I think anybody who is feeling frustrated about the climate out there in the world could benefit greatly uh, by reading. Let's talk about a strategic dialogue. Hmm. Well, thank you for saying that. I, <laughs> I appreciate that. You know, this is something that's very close to my heart because uh, I have spent a lot of time having some sometimes difficult conversations with folks on different sides of issues that I care about. Um, as you said, I've, I've spent a lot of time doing work uh, around faith and sexuality. And I so often find myself in rooms full of people who think one way and then other rooms full of people who think another way. And and uh, they don't understand each other. They don't know how to communicate with each other. And often we run into this within our own families and our own circles where we've got people we know, but we just don't get them. We disagree with them on issues, but we don't know how to even broach those topics without it turning into arguments. And I think that in a polarized world like we live in now, we need a way to talk to each other, a kind of dialogue that's not saying that uh, our disagreements don't matter, which is what a lot of people think of when you say dialogue. People just, you know, oh, well, let's just dialogue. Let's just sing Kumbaya or something, which people <laughs> don't want. When, when you actually care about an issue and you think there's a right and a wrong answer, you know, you don't want to just pretend it doesn't matter. But, but we need a way to have dialogue that is strategic, that that says, hey, I think that the right answer to this issue, whatever it is, is important. And I think that your answer is wrong and mine is right. And I'd like to convince you to see things my way. But but if you want to actually increase that understanding and give the other person a chance to see things your way, you have to know how to talk to them in a way that will help them to open up and, and be willing to listen to other points of view. Well, communication 
is not necessarily a sales job. I mean, many of us think, well, if we're communicating, we're trying to get the other person to adopt our opinions or our beliefs. And what you're saying with strategic dialogue is something else. That's right. It's not about being some kind of smarmy salesperson and 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 trying to trick somebody into doing what you want them to do. And very often I find with strategic dialogue, as you listen to the other person, as you hear their side of things, you learn a lot and it may help to modify your own position. Your position may change. But strategic dialogue is just as important, even if your position doesn't change, even if you are 100 percent in the right and very rarely are any of us 100% in the right. But even if you are, there's still value in this dialogue. Because when you come at somebody like a salesperson, just trying to pitch something to them without caring about where they're coming from or why they disagree with you, they're going to treat you the way that most of us treat salespeople, which is to sort of tune them out and say, look, I know what I want. Uh, you know, I don't need your sales pitch. But if you show an interest in the other person as a human being and try to understand their point point of view, uh, as, as Stephen Covey put it, is seek first to understand, then to be understood. You can help them then to get into a place where they're ready to hear from you. And as the two of you have this conversation that that is strategic, that, that is designed to actually go somewhere and not just talk in circles, um, you increase understanding on both sides and help both people get closer to whatever the truth may be in the situation. So when we are engaged in contentious conversations, what are some strategies that we might use in approaching another or diffusing tension that might be building? Well, there are a lot of things. And one of the easiest and also sometimes most counterintuitive is to listen first. Uh, we don't we don't want to listen to somebody if we think that we've got the answer and and maybe we feel like we've listened to them enough and it's our side that's not being heard enough. We don't you know, we naturally want to talk and, and get them to listen. But the reality is that if you don't listen to somebody first, then you you don't really understand where they're coming from, even when you think uh, you do. And listening not only helps you understand them, but it also puts them uh, into a mindset where they're more willing to listen to you. I had a, a friend who works for a, a large corporate entity where he does a lot of customer service. And he told me that one of the things that they taught him early on was if you encounter an angry customer, you know, don't tell them to calm down. That just makes people angrier. You you listen to them and then you reflect back to them. What I'm hearing you say is, you know, it's, that must have been very frustrating. I can understand why this matters to you. That's what gets people to calm down when they feel like they're being heard. And so if we feel like somebody's not listening to us, it feels counterintuitive to say if they're not listening to you, the, the, then what you need to do is listen to them. But that's what actually works. And it also teaches you if they have misconceptions that need to be corrected or if they don't really get where you're coming from in ways that you thought that they did. And that's what helps to start the dialogue process. I really appreciate what you're sharing, because it, when we look at the political climate, which has polarized families and sometimes mm. even couples in the same household. What I've gleaned from kind of making informal study of this is when I have asked people to explain, like, I really want to know why you have this position. I don't hold the same position as you, but tell me, I, I, I want to know from your perspective and your experience, you know, to place myself in their shoes. And oftentimes they can't, they can't mm -hmm. really explain the why. 
Yeah, that's one of the things that's so, so difficult is often, you know, we don't really know why other people believe what they do. You know, if you if you ask people, why does the other person believe that a lot of times their answer will be some kind of a straw man. But but often uh, as well, people can't even explain their own motives when you ask right away. It takes time. It takes some digging. It takes asking the right questions and and trying to be a good, active listener to, to get at what is what is the real issue here? What is it really underlying all of the superficial things that they might say? What is it they're really worried about? What what is it they're afraid is going to happen if you get your way? You know, what is it that they believe that that may not be true? You know, as I said earlier, it, there are all these motivations that are not on the surface that people may not even be consciously aware of themselves that if you don't know what they are, then you can't address them. And if you can't address them, then you're not going to really be able to get somebody to a place where where they're not only where they could change their mind, but where they're even able to consider changing their mind because there's this thing they're afraid of that they haven't voiced that you haven't addressed because they haven't voiced it. Yeah. So getting to the getting to the kernel of what the issue is, which is maybe not even the issue, something else. That's right. <laughs> That's right. And and what can be, you know, really interesting is you find that several different people who all take the same position on the same issue may use similar language because they're listening to the same sources of information, you know, they're part of the same group, they all talk to each other. But if you talk to them one on one, you find that what's actually really driving each one of them is something different. But we get into groups of people who we perceive to be like ourselves. And that kind of that creates a sort of group think where we we echo each other and we become more and more extreme and we find it harder and harder to understand people outside of our bubbles um, when really what it is for for me may be really different from what it is for this other member of my group. And so being able to form one on one connections where I say to you, rather than just, you know, you're part of that group and I'm part of this group to say, hey, you know, we're members of the same family or we are members of the same community or the same church or that, you know, whatever. We have something in common with each other. Let's talk one on one and and talk about what we value in common. And that's a starting point into a conversation where I can really start getting to what matters to you and why you care about the things you do. I, I like what you said about, you know, approaching it from from the commonality that at the end of the day, and this really crosses any religion, belief, political party. At the end of the day, we're all people. And every person that I've ever encountered in my life has at least two or three core values that align with mine. Mm -hmm. That's right. Because the thing is, none of us are the same. And so we can choose to focus on the things that that we don't have in common. Maybe we belong to different political parties or or whatnot. But we can also choose to focus on the things that we do have in common. We may belong to different parties, but we're part of the same group in some other way, or we have other shared values that that are a starting point for conversation. And the other thing is, as we focus on that, we can tell stories. We can tell stories of our interaction with a particular issue. And so I can share why this issue is important to me. But more importantly, I can ask you to share why this issue is important to you. What have you been through? What have you experienced? What stories have you heard or lived in your life that might help inform for me, you know, what brought you to the position that you have on the issue? Because that story may have stuff in it that you wouldn't even 
be aware of that you, that you wouldn't even voice to say, I care about this because, but if you tell me a story about when this issue became important to you, I can hear in that story what's really going on. Ah, the power of storytelling, right? The personal narrative, because mm -hmm. we take the position because we care. There's something in there that fires us up. That's absolutely right. I remember, so I grew up in a very conservative Christian family. We had uh, very anti-gay views. And then I discovered I was gay, which I didn't want to be or, or even understand how it could be. And I remember in one of the early conversations that I had after I told my dad, uh, and, and, you know, his initial reaction was not a, a positive one. Um, we talked about the Bible. We talked about all of the, the religious questions around sexual orientation. But also, I remember him telling me a story of some very negative experiences that he'd had with gay men early in his life. And I realized the fact that those stories came up for him so quickly um, told me that he had some stereotypes about what gay people were like. He'd had these early experiences and in his mind, this is what gay men are like. And these are very negative experiences. And so when I said, you know, dad, I think I'm gay in his mind, it was like, well, you can't be because this is what gay men are like, because I've known these people. And I had to, to then figure out how to use that information to give him other stories of what gay people could be like. Yeah. Oh, this is this is such a, a a good subject to talk about. We're going to take a break. And when we come back, we're going to continue the conversation with Justin Lee. He is the author of Talking Across the Divide, How to Communicate with People You Disagree With and Maybe Even Change the World. To learn more, please visit geekyjustin.com on Twitter at Geeky Justin Lee, on Facebook, Geeky Justin, and on Instagram. He is at Geeky Justin Lee. Here comes the break. We'll be right back. And that's a promise. To learn more about cultivating sustainable well-being at home and the office, visit HarvestingHappiness.com and explore Lisa's experiential on-site brain fitness workshops, corporate programming, and speaking engagement services. Welcome back to Harvesting Happiness. If you're just joining us now, I urge you to download and share this podcast episode. Why? Because sharing is caring. It's kind, free, legal, available 24-7. And we're talking about strategic communication and how using our words can allow us to connect with people and pretty much talk about anything and change the world using conversation. My guest today is Justin Lee. Justin, before the break, we were talking about strategic dialogue, which is essentially what the book is about, you know, how to speak with people who may not have like-minded views or come from the same tribe. Talk a little bit about your experience in successfully changing someone's mind about a topic. Oh, goodness. Well, I've, I've spent a lot of time having conversations with fellow Christians. I, I come, as I said, from a conservative evangelical background, actually. And conservative evangelicals are not known on the whole for being particularly in favor of the LGBTQ movement. And so here, here I am as this gay evangelical. And so I've had a lot of conversations <laughs> <laughs> We've had a lot of conversations with gay people about evangelicals and a lot of conversations with evangelicals about gay people. And um, what I find is quite often when the subject is broached, 
people on both sides have really negative impressions of the other. And if you talk about specific issues, things like same-sex marriage, people have a lot of strong views. And people make a lot of assumptions about me when I use words like, like evangelical, for instance, to describe myself. And so one of the things that I've had the pleasure of doing is sitting down and going through this strategic dialogue with people in a, in a variety of contexts and getting to know what they think about people like me, what they think about people on the other side of these issues from them, and moving to a place where I can share my story and talk about what I've been through. What have I been through that would cause me to to call myself an evangelical? What have I been through to, that would cause me to identify myself as gay? What's my experience been like uh, with the, the LGBTQ community, with, with the Christian community and all of these things? And I find that over and over and over again, people change their attitudes on a whole host of things. Sometimes people change their mind on something like same-sex marriage. Sometimes it's just something as simple as, wow, I really thought that all people like such and such were like such and such, you know, I, I thought that all of this group was like this. And listening to your story, I realized that's not true. I realized there's a lot I didn't understand about these folks. And now I have a better understanding of what's motivating them and yeah. why they are who they are. And so it's it's been really cool. I've seen a lot of parents accept their kids who are really having trouble accepting their kids. I've seen a lot of people change their minds in a lot of ways. And um, it's something I've been doing for uh, about 20 years now. It's fascinating. I, I shared with you during the break a story that I have about changing someone's mind. It was probably one of the most powerful ones that I can think of. And it was using some of the principles in, in your book. I was married to a man, as I explained to you, who was a rabid Republican. There's nothing wrong with that. But he was very anti-gay marriage. And I wanted to know the why, really, because essentially, if you look at conservative values. They are about family connection. And he couldn't really give me the answer other than he felt that it was not promoting a good moral code. And when I pointed out to him that what he was saying didn't make sense, because the ability to marry somebody that you love of your own choosing, not only promotes a good moral code or compass, but also promotes connection, love in family which I think we can all agree is something that we value as a society, as a culture. Hmm. And he changed his mind after he, after he, yeah. we had this conversation. He goes, you know, I never thought of it that way. Yeah, I've had similar conversations with folks. And I find that, again, this is where the listening comes in. As I ask questions and, and really try to understand what they're thinking and feeling, I find a lot of different things. Like sometimes people believe that, that, you know, if I wanted to become straight, that I could. Um, <laughs> that you could pray, pray the gay away, pointed, right? <laughs> right. Well, you know, I, I, in my book, in my first book, which is called Torn, Rescuing the Gospel from the Gays versus Christians Debate, I wrote, wrote about my experience in some of those, uh, what people would now call the pray away the gay groups, what were called ex-gay ministries. And, um, you know, I met a lot of, of people who genuinely wanted to change their orientation and it didn't work. But a lot of people back home in their churches thought that it was changing and thought that it could be changed. And so for them, for somebody to marry somebody of the same sex, for instance, was to decline to let God change them. 
Um, you know, so, so they saw it as embracing something bad and, and, and often had negative ideas about what a same sex marriage was like and, and what was really motivating people. And as they actually got to know people who had been through these ministries and whose orientation hadn't changed and saw the loneliness they were dealing with and saw the, the joy and self-sacrificial nature of, of their marriages when they did get married to somebody of the same sex, it changed a lot of people's attitudes. Now, some of them for religious reasons might have still said, I still, for religious reasons, don't believe it's right, but at least it helped them understand better and it often changed their attitude toward LGBTQ folks in general. So it, you never know what people may believe or be thinking and, until you ask. Yeah. I mean, at the end of the day, while we are all different people, we are driven by this basic need for love, connection, and belonging. And Having the conversation in the way that you guide us with this strategic dialogue, whether it's our neighbor, our partner, or our opponent, is critical because we want that. We want to be in a tribe and part of something. That's right. And sometimes that instinct to, to be part of something can work for us or can work against us, depending on how we use it. Yeah. So one of the things that we see a lot right now in our current cultural climate is this, this team loyalty where we feel that we have a certain allegiance to, say, a political party. And that becomes our all-encompassing identity. There's been research done on this that I talk about in the book where, for instance, if people are told that a particular piece of legislation is supported by their party and opposed by the other party, then they're for it. And as soon as you flip that and tell them, oh, no, actually, it's your party opposes it, and the other party supports it, then they're, they're against it, the same legislation, because their political allegiance has become more important to them than the actual specifics of the legislation. And we are all affected by that in uh, more ways than we realize this sense of team loyalty. And so that can divide us where if I think you are on a different social team than me, a different religious group, a different political group, a different cultural group, then I become less interested in hearing what you have to say because you're one of those people. But what we can do is turn that around and find as we were saying earlier, those points of commonality and say, actually, you know, here's what we have in common. We're on the same team because we're part of this group, you know, that we're, you know, you and I both know what it's like to be a member of this church. You and I both know what it's like to be part of this community. And because we have that in common, now we have a reason to listen to each other that we might not have before. And those connections are so important. And it's so sorely needed. You know, we have such a divided nation right now and probably a divided world uh, as well. But having the conversation, being courageous enough to want to have the conversation because the government isn't going to solve it for us. They're not going uh, <laughs> to they're not going yeah. to 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 cross the Rubicon and say, no, no, we really need to see where we can align. It's actually working for the benefit of the government that we are in a state of discord, at least at this moment. Yeah, I think that if we're going to accomplish anything uh, as, as humanity, we have to learn how to talk to each other. And one of the things that we have to learn to do is to see the people we disagree with, not as 
one-dimensional movie villains who are plotting to take over the world or something, but as human beings, flawed human beings, as we all are. And that's not to say that there are no villains in the world. You know, there are the the Hitlers of the world. They they are real. But for the most part, the people we encounter in our everyday lives, um, the people who we may disagree with strongly on issues that are important to us, are not they're not villains. They're not going into these issues trying to figure out how they can mess up our lives. They are trying to do what they think is right. And they may have incomplete information. They may be focusing on a, a piece of it that's important to them and ignoring another piece that's important to somebody else. But they have reasons that they believe what they do. And if I can approach a difference of opinion with you in a way that doesn't put you on the defensive, that doesn't make you think that I think you're a villain or an idiot, but in a way that that says, hey, I, I respect you and I know you're trying to do what you think is right. And let me give you another way of looking at it that I know you're going to care about because I know you're a good person. That's much more likely to get a positive response than if I just say, look, let me tell you, <laughs> you idiot. <Yeah. laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm rolling my eyes because I know everybody listening has had those kinds of conversations. <laughs> well, yeah. sometimes we get so frustrated with people that we do just start to think of them as idiots and villains because it makes life easier. But real life doesn't usually work that way. Yeah. Well, because the other exists, the other person matters. And I think that it's <laughs> worth the other person is worth that time to invest, to be curious, to learn. And maybe if we all can extend a little bit of that courtesy to another that's where we see the, the, the tide shift. Absolutely. Can you imagine if we lived in a world where our, our first instinct when we had a disagreement was to say, gosh, I really disagree with you on this, but I know you're a smart person and I know you're a good person. And so I know you must have a reason that you believe what you do. So help me understand where you're coming from, because I really... I want to understand, and, and you're saying the same thing to me, if that was our first instinct to actually listen to each other and work together to try to figure out what the nuanced, complicated truth is with all the shades of gray, we would, it would be a completely different society that we live in for the better. And that's our challenge, you know, to go forth mm -hmm. and take the information in your book, Talking Across the Divide, how to communicate with people you disagree with and maybe even change the world to not from maybe, but to actually change the world. Absolutely. That's what I believe in. I'm right there with you. Thank you, Justin <laughs> Lee. To learn more, please visit Justin at geekyjustin.com on Twitter, Geeky Justin Lee, Facebook, Geeky Justin, and on Instagram, Geeky Justin Lee. Thanks for being with me today. I really appreciate it. Well, thanks for so much for having me on. I, I really enjoyed it. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Here comes the break. Did you know that happiness is actually good for your health? Happy people live longer, are more productive, and make better partners, parents, and professionals. Connect with us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness and follow Lisa on Twitter at Lisa Kamen for a daily dose of inspiration.
welcome back to the show. We're continuing the conversation about strategic communication that builds bridges and activates change. My next guests are doing just that. Melanie Klein and Mark Cardone are social activists leading with joy. I want to bring on Melanie C. Klein and Mark Cardone. They're partners in the business world, they're partners in life, and they're partners in creating lots of joy and happiness. Welcome, guys. Thanks for having us. Yeah, it's awesome to be here. Oh, it is awesome to be with you. Melanie, talk a little bit about your experience and your background um, and how it brought you to the happiness table from a sociology and feministic perspective. Great. I love talking about this stuff. It is absolutely joyful just to have the conversation. And I feel very fortunate to actually have this be part of my work, to have these sorts of conversations to inspire others, because I come from a very angsty and anger-driven background. I was your very stereotypical, alternative, angry teenager with the shaved head and the black nail polish that was really, you know, railing against the world. And um, felt a ton of resentment, uh, felt an incredible amount of just, I don't know, defiance in every way. And that kind of carried me into my first class on feminism and discovered not only feminist consciousness and the feminist movement, but discovered what's called the sociological imagination, which is a lens that really looks at how we as individuals fit into the larger social framework, how we create it, how we recreate it, and how in turn what we've created has an impact on us. And that really was the beginning of starting to deconstruct the world around me and have my own life make sense. And it was very clear within, you know, a very short period of time that this was going to be what I did for the rest of my life, that I had a very firm commitment to kind of sit in the seat of being a leader and a teacher and a mentor and as a student and continue to learn and grow and then offer what I was learning to others. So that was, like I said, a very immediate realization. And as I started to sort of deconstruct the world around me from those perspectives, there was not only a sense of I would say liberation and release, but there was also a simultaneous anger. So I always quote Gloria Steinem where she says, the truth will set you free, but first it will piss you off. And that was was (laughs) very much my experience. But what had changed was that the anger that I was feeling was not so haphazard and all over the place as when I was a young sort of angry teenager. Now I had, you know, sort of a theoretical background. I had a groundedness and a movement and I felt that I could use that anger to propel me forward. And and that's what I was doing. Eventually I came to my mindfulness practices, yoga and meditation And this allowed me to live uh, in a new way. So I combined the intellectual component with the lived component. And then that is what informed my work for a very, very long time. But what I found was that a lot of my spontaneous joy and my enthusiasm and my very funny nature, if you will, kind of began to dissipate over the years of doing this work. And it really wasn't until this year that it became clear to me that that was something that needed to be reignited. And when Mark and I came together, 
there was sort of this simultaneous combustion of our backgrounds, our experiences, and both intellectually and personally, that allowed me to put that into practice and to see that talking about joy and happiness was not something empty or I would say light a lot of times, right? Someone could look at that as like, oh, that's a very <laughs> light topic. And I actually found that with everything I had been doing, it added a new form of energy and a new way to propel my work forward that would actually allow it to grow and expand. And so that's how I'm sitting here right now talking to all of you about this. Let's hear from Mark Cardone. Talk a little bit, Mark, about how you came to the work, because you come from an academic background. You're an author and a coach, a speaker as well. Talk a little bit about that. Yeah, well, I think it starts with me with having two Filipino immigrant <laughs> parents, right? And, and so, you know, I grew up with the immigrant story that, hey, uh, we sacrificed everything for you, son, and you're going to become a doctor. And, you know, blindly, I followed that. And I thought that was going to uh, create happiness for not only me, but my collective. And there was this point in college where I started pushing back and I was like, well, what is the difference between collective happiness and individual happiness? And I started thinking about social justice work, and I then sort of went into this activism work. And I didn't know, honey, but like you and I were kind of uh, some pissed off people when we were younger. Like <laughs> I, started, I started pushing back not only on my family, but also on some of the things that I was uh, growing up with, sort of like, you know, uh, I needed to be this all-American saved by the bell type of kid. Mm. And, uh, you know, I started to grow up my hair longer. And maybe that's why we're doing this punk rock joy revolution thing now, hon. But what happened was that I got to go back and I had the privilege of working in higher education in multicultural affairs and creating programs for students. So as I got older, I got to pass on some of these things that I was learning about multiculturalism. And one of the things that I wasn't thinking about was that I was sort of indoctrinating students to be angry, to be angry about the movement. Mm -hmm. You have to be upset when you're talking about controversy. We have to pit ourselves against something that's evil in order for us to look good. And I realized that in what I was doing was that I was burning myself out. And so when I had the opportunity to move up, I started to run into things like positive psychology. And at first I pushed back. I pushed back on positive psychology. <laughs> and I said, no, we have this war to fight. How is it that we can think about happiness? That's a privilege for them, not us. We have to be angry about this. And the more and more I started to look into the happiness work, the more and more I started to relate back to the work of my parents who came from the health field. There's a lot of relationships uh, when it comes to social justice and happiness, when it comes to neuroscience and the way the brain is shaped, the way that we look at the world, the way that we can show up, the way that we can be sustainable. And towards the end of my career, I realized that I wanted to start teaching happiness courses for students. And it went the other side of the pendulum, where instead of being angry all the time, all I ever talked about was, well, we got to be happy. We got to be happy. We got to be happy. And then the next thing you know, the pendulum swung. And I was I was only talking about this sort of Pollyanna happiness. Yeah. Where it's like, we, we have to be happy and it's almost still the showing face that we're we're happy, even though 
you might be experiencing other emotions inside. You know, you both bring up some really important points that that there is a lot of false information out there about positive psychology or the science of happiness. You know, we talk about it every week on this show for nine plus years. But, <laughs> but, but really what we're talking about is a level of well-being and a level of self-mastery and management that says, no, life is not always happy, but, you know, we can create happy moments within life regardless of what is going on. Absolutely. I, and I, that's why we wanted to come on the show in the first place is to be a part of your movement and to, to be able to, to powwow about this because so much of the positive psychology movement has been these misnomers that people think that it's all about Taco Tuesday every single day. And it, it's, <laughs> it's all about the Skittles raining from the sky. And so much about joy is about being able to experience those ups and those downs and those all rounds of life and being able to embrace those. It's why we talk about resilience and going beyond resilience, not just, you know, coming back to some sort of happiness set point and being the same every day, but how is it that you can grow from those ups and those downs and those all arounds? And that's what I love about positive psychology is that it complements everything, that we absolutely have the potential to grow. Why is it that we're not looking at optimal performance? Why is it that we're not looking at flow as much as we're looking at the things that aren't necessarily going optimally? You know, I love what's going on with positive psychology. And I love now the fact that positive psychology is being integrated in things like coaching and social justice work, yoga. It's such a, a great tool for us to understand and communicate around things instead of just saying the Skittles falling from the sky all the time. Well, and your angle of using social activism, you know, or practicing joy through the lens of social activism, using the power of our emotions, positive, negative, or, or there, there's no such thing, really. Emotions are emotions. Mm -hmm. They're fleeting. They come and they go. But harnessing the power of them to enhance the greater good. I think that this is unique to what, you know, to what the two of you are creating and allows me to sort of view this through a slightly different perspective. You know, I love talking about being happily pissed off, right? Like when you <laughs> own, when you own it, you know, right? Like, yes, yeah. I am irritated. <laughs> yes. And you're making good use out of this. Absolutely. We firmly believe that we can go from anger and channel that into something much more expansive, something much larger and contagious that is going to be sustainable and actually bring about the change that we want as opposed to creating greater divisiveness. And there is an element of curiosity. There's an element of being fully present. There's that element of living it, being it fully in, you know, mind, heart and body. And that's really what we're looking to do in order to have folks who are committed to creating, you know, greater good for everyone to actually be able to do that without burning out or with spending time squabbling amongst each other and not actually addressing the larger issues that need to be addressed. Yeah. I, and I love how she addresses that as a sociologist, as a, someone who is a neuroscience major. I'm thinking about just the science of activation energy. In order to create change in any kind of physics, we have to put activation energy. So when you're talking about that idea of being irritated, that's not necessarily a bad thing. It's like the same thing as when we're pulling back on a slingshot. 
We feel yes. that tension at first, but then when we actually let go of that slingshot, we can see that progress. And 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 so the irritation is not necessarily the bad thing or the good thing. It's how we use that activation energy to create positive change. I had a very wise professor when I was in graduate school. They were they were a couple also, and they they said, you know, how we relate to the issue is the issue, right? Mm. That that really is the issue. Like stuff happens, but you know, it's what we do with the stuff that happens that is the predictor of our success emotionally and personally and professionally. Uh, We're going to take a break. But before we do, I want to touch upon the two different kinds of happiness, because what you're really or the two identified types of happiness, and one of them happens to be one of your Twitter handles. And that is, you know, (laughs) hedonia and eudaimonia. So, you know, and hedonic comes from hedonism, right? It's the pleasures of the skin. And the other form, eudaimonia, is about how we make meaning in our lives. Absolutely. And a lot of people will think that one is greater than the other or that, you know, in order to live a meaningful life, the eudaimonic life, we have to disavow the hedonic one. No. Or that the pleasurable life, the hedonic life, is one in which that we're not leading a life of meaning. And what we're trying to get at, and what many positive psychologists get at, is true flourishing comes when we are living a life of meaning and getting those hedonic pleasures on a daily basis. Amen. You know, it's doing good work in great high heels. <laughs> How do you know I'm wearing high heels? (laughs) I don't, but I know that you are joyful with your red hair. Ah, absolutely. (laughs) Boom. Let's take that break. To learn more about the work of Melanie C. Klein and Mark Cardone, please visit thejoyrevolution.com. You can connect on Twitter with both of them at Udamaniac, Udamaniac, (laughs) and Feminist Fatale. And on Facebook, we've got Mark Cardone Coaching. And here comes the break. We'll be right back. And that's a promise. Who says money can't buy happiness? Whether you are a skeptic or seeker, check out Lisa's new book, Are We Happy Yet? Eight Keys to Unlocking a Joyful Life, a boot camp manual for greater emotional fitness, is available at Barnes & Noble, Amazon, IndieBound, and HarvestingHappiness.com. Here's a truth bomb. Emotions are contagious, and happiness is a universally desired state. But we tend to forget that we all have the freedom to be happy or the liberty to be miserable each day, regardless of external circumstances. Explore the journey of human happiness, how to find it and keep it, with Lisa's documentary film, H-Factor. Where is your heart? Visit HarvestingHappiness.com to learn more. Welcome back to the show. If you're just joining us now, we are talking about the importance of using our words wisely and leading with joy for social activism that leads to social change. 
We're continuing the conversation with Melanie Klein and Mark Cardone. All right, guys, I want to talk about the work that you're doing over there at the Joy Revolution. Absolutely. Yeah. So with the Joy Revolution, we really want to amplify people's ability to make change in their communities, whether that is their families and their neighborhoods or on a much larger scale. We have a lot of people who are mega influencers who are doing this work with us because we recognize that as each person um, is able to truly learn how to build and sustain movements and integrate that with mindfulness and positive psych, that there is a really huge opportunity to make massive change. And so we are taking our shared backgrounds in academics and social justice, mindfulness, and obviously Mark with positive psych, and we've brought them all together and packaged them in such a way that people can move out confidently, uh, mindfully and skillfully in a way that is going to bring more people into the fold and sustain this for a long time to come, to continue to bring more and more positive change for everyone from the bottom up, the top down, and everyone in the middle as well. So for those of us who might have been slightly pissed off by the way our, <laughs> the way our government is has been running the past couple of years, here's an opportunity to be a positive agent for change. Applying this, applying this methodology. Absolutely. Because, you know, one of the things that Mark and I found is, you know, we have been in social justice spaces, both of us for 20 plus years, actively on the ground, organizing, agitating, educating. And so we've paid very close attention to how uh, these conversations have gone, how people dialogue, interact, and how movements are being built. And not only has been there been a massive shift with the sort of influx of the internet as a tool, but also in the last couple of years in this political climate, that it's actually become increasingly divisive, as I said earlier, between groups, but also within groups. And that has oftentimes led things to be less effective than they could be. And there was this element of burnout that we both felt like, how can we continue to do this work if it's being done in this way. And we felt very moved. We felt deeply compelled to offer all of our shared knowledge and present it in a new way so that we can move through this, as we said, with joy and to feel that, to see it while not denying, right, those things that might cause anger, while not overlooking injustice, while not spiritually bypassing. And there are very few people, to be quite honest, who can bring that all together. And we want to create a new community of those people so that we can move forward in a way that is going to truly, truly affect change. What an opportunity. What an opportunity for young and old. You know, I don't think this is just exclusive to the young generation, you know, to Generation Z. I mean, I think that there are old folks around there who could benefit from this. It doesn't matter the age. I think the biggest thing that we sat down and looked at is feeling like you're a victim. Feeling pissed off is contagious. It runs rampant in a lot of communities. But in the same way, if you flip it to the other side, joy is equally contagious. Yes, equally contagious and infectious. Infectious, absolutely. And one of the things that um, sometimes we forget about is that it can be used as a leadership skill. It can be absolutely used as a leadership skill. So one of the things in the joy revolution that we talk about is how can we continue to grow in joy 
Use it as a leadership skill. We look at things like we don't not just we don't just think about this as a novel approach. Folks like Viktor Frankl use joy as a leadership skill to hopefully get him through one of the darkest of times in a concentration camp to survive. He used hope and joy to think about how is it that I'm going to spread my message when I get out of this place? Yeah. When, and not if, when. When. <laughs> and so in many ways, we can think about nowadays, we don't have to compare our lives to a concentration camp, but what are the areas in which each of us can sometimes feel joyful and then walk into a dark place in our lives and be affected by that dark place? Can we walk into those dark places like Victor did and be hopeful and joyful and affect it in another way? At the same time, there's just old school social change pieces that we looked at. For example, the idea of can we create controversy with civility? Yes. With yes. Civility. Yes, we can. And the way we can do that is breaking bread and thinking about things like joy and connection. And so in many ways, um, old school, new school, it feels fresh, but also at the same time, we do give deference to the folks who came before us. And we're not trying to break major patterns of research. We want to incorporate research, but also how is that research being used in the application of social media? The way that we interact with each other nowadays, because in many ways you can go turn on social media and say, hey, if you hate Trump, unfriend me right now. Whoa, we're missing an opportunity to have controversy with civility right now. Why, you know, why is it that those things are happening? And let's have a conversation around it. Well, some of us don't need to even go out there into the social media sphere. We can just sit oh. around our own. Like, I know that in my family, we had political differences this year. And some people will, or this year and last year, some people will say, well, we're, we're not talking politics. And I'm like, why not? I want to, mm. I want to understand you. I want to understand the differences. I want to put myself in your shoes because something motivated you to, right. to vote the way that you voted. And I want to know what it is. And it's scary for some people because then they have to really stand up for themselves. And now you're, you're, now you're also talking about leading with curiosity instead of leading with your agenda. And that's one of the greatest things about joy is that being in a, a position to constantly be able to learn from your environment and grow is being able to be curious and say, hey, I just want to know why you think this way. Exactly. Wanna, what, what makes you tick? Because, uh, because uh, right now that's, that's not something that makes me tick, but I, I want to know what makes you tick. But you know what? At the end of the day, somebody that we ostensibly think of as our enemy or our opponent, it's really a bit of a, a Maya or a myth in that if you ask your enemy or your opponent or somebody who is different from you what they ultimately want out of their lives, their goals mm. and their desires are the same. Absolutely. Absolutely. We're ruled, I, we're ruled by it as humans, right? I, I, yeah, I, I, I'm thinking about that book, The Five Regrets of the Dying. And at the end of people's lives, regardless of their belief system, their re religiosity, their political backgrounds, a lot of people will go through life. And at the end of life, there was a book that came out on the top five things that people say. I wish that I had more time to connect with my friends. I wish I did more things to make me happy. I wish I did more things when I was happy to allow that happiness in. Oh. 
And what they found, what they found was it didn't matter what the person's belief system was. It was that, you know, if they if they didn't find these core things when it came to purpose, eudaimonia, hedonia, things that are, are more universal than they are. Let's take a side on this. There's so many more things that we have in common And we sometimes forget about that because we look at the few things that, you know, we might uh, disagree, uh, disagree about. And those are, uh, you know, sometimes trivial when it when it is when we're trying to come together and create change. And it can sometimes get in the way. And I guess that's that's a a good takeaway. You know, if we're going to rumble with somebody and I mean that in its best context, right, if we're going to get in there and get scrappy with somebody about their beliefs to remember that they're really not that different from you and me, you know, or we're that, that not that different from one another. Ultimately, we want to be connected. We want love. We want health. We want prosperity. We want safety and security. Those are universal desires and we do not do well without them. Yeah. And we're looking at each other right now, whether it be a sociologist, whether it be a neuroscientist, we're just nodding our heads in agreement with you. It (laughs) it really, it it really doesn't matter. And, and I mean, uh, even the, uh, the difference between sociology and neuroscience is not that it's not that big of a deal, you know? Um, And so we can sit on the table talking about verbose things. And at the end of the day, we're scrapping but we get to hug and cuddle at the end of the night and watch Nacho Libre. Like, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? And so we get to laugh and and hold hands and have fun and create together. But, you know, if we feel like scrapping, we'll, we'll scrap. But it's not it's like play wrestling. Yes. It's, like play. it's not an indictment of who one another is. It's just getting into it for thought and connection. I mean, that's another way that we connect. Right. Like when you look at puppies and babies, that's they get together and they roll all over each other and tumble and they're just playing and they're nipping at each other. It's a part of the animal kingdom. It's a part of of life. But also at the same time, it's not the highest form of our existence is to get so into the into the rumble that we think every part of life is about rumble. And I have to go and check myself and use an I statement right now. When I was in higher education going full circle, I was stuck in the rumble, and that's why I appreciate something like positive psychology and folks like Melanie and platforms like this where we can talk about it and I can continue to grow and say, you know, that that was a part of my uh, journey, and I appreciate that I got to take myself out of that, and I appreciate that I can look back at it and, and I can grow from that. And from the rumble comes the revolution, which is what we're talking about today, right? My, you guys are awesome. My guests today have been Melanie C. Klein and Mark Cardone. We're talking about the joy revolution to learn more about their work. They've got a course where you can actually be trained in the marriage of social activism and positive psychology over at thejoyrevolution.com. On Twitter, you can connect with these folks at Udomaniac and at <laughs> Feminist Fatal on Twitter. And on Facebook, Mark Cardone Coaching is where he can be found. And Melanie's got an Instagram, but uh, is it Melly Mel Klein? It's, it's Mel Mel Klein. Mel Mel Klein. There it is. Thank you, guys. Oh, thank, thank you, you so much for your time. Great conversation. And we're looking forward to sharing this with everyone in your community. 
Well, that's a wrap for this week. Thanks for joining us on Harvesting Happiness. This is Lisa Cypress-Kamen and my amazing guests today, Justin Lee, Melanie Klein, and Mark Cardone, wishing you kind thoughts, kinder words, and the kindest of actions. Until next time, remember, happiness is an inside job. Happiness is your inside job. Go out and rock your day. Keep harvesting your own happiness anytime and anywhere from the comfort of wherever you are. Subscribe, listen, and share hundreds of downloadable episodes via our free app or from our libraries at toginet.com, iTunes, Google Play, and other fine podcast platforms. To learn more about Lisa's global consulting services, please visit harvestinghappiness.com. Spread more joy by liking us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness and following Lisa on Twitter at Lisa Kamen. Harvesting Happiness is produced in collaboration with Toginet Radio. KBUU-RadioMalibu.net and is available on PRX, the public radio exchange. <laughs>